Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is January 22nd, 2016, and it is Friday. Friday, 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 guys. Time for the Expert Council Q&A show, the monster show of the week. With so much diversity and so much expertise, you might think your brain's going to come out of your ears by the end of the show because it'll swell so much with knowledge. Seriously. Before we get into that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consult and the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it. But you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities. There's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody that doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people that are trying to defend themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, there's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back to your lowest, not highest level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over. The kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. Sponsor of the day number two today, Ready-Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right on their website. All the resources you need ready-made, ready to go at ReadyMadeResources.com. And when I say all the resources, I mean it from the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it at Ready-Made Resources. 12-volt appliances to go with your solar and wind projects? Check, they've got that. You want to do solar and wind? Hey, they've got everything you need for that. You want long-term storage food? You want it by the can? or by the case, they've got it. You want to make your own long-term storage food? You need uh, Mylar bags and O2 absorbers? They've got that. You want gamma lids for your five-gallon buckets? Got it, check, no problem. You want to start canning, whether it's water bath or pressure canning, they've got what you need. Dehydrators, got that too. Want to get over and look at some tactical accessories or firearms if you're in their state or have an FFL to ship to? They've got it all, man. Like I said, the practical to the tactical, the guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at the company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com, a long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast, Happy to serve you with great pricing and great service. Again, ReadyMadeResources.com. 
Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode since the year, or since the episode is 1715. The year we'll look at is 1715. We have two uh, for you today at tspwiki.com from Alex Shrug, reading them the Riot Act, and there are no slaves in France, except that there are. Anyway, as interesting as the French one would be, I'm going to read reading them the Riot Act, because we're starting to see the grievances that not just occurred in the colonies, but the grievances that would occur to any uh, member of the, the, the British Isles, any, any subject, any citizen that, that would say, hey, maybe things shouldn't be this way. And if you look at the formation of the United States Constitution, some of these are direct preventions of these things being done yet again by a new government. So here we go. The Riot Act is passed under King George I of England. Uh, when 12 or more people are illegally assembled, the Riot Act is read before the people are dispersed. Justice is swift. No need for courts to evidence. At one hour, After one hour has passed, your personal presence within range of a constable's billy club is evidence enough. The police are automatically forgiven for any injury or death that may result from the enforcement of this law. That means that they can kill you, no questions asked. The following paragraph is read before justice's dispense, rendered into modern English. Our sovereign Lord the King charges and commands all persons being assembled immediately to disperse themselves and peaceably to depart to their habitations or to their lawful business upon the pains contained in the act made in the first year of King George for the preventing of tumults and riotous assemblies. God Save the King, the Riot Act of 1715. The Riot Act is a law of prior restraint. That meant that before you do anything wrong, the government can declare that you're already doing something wrong by assembling. Lots of people carry signs demanding their rights under the law tend to make government officials nervous. Thus, the Riot Act was used mostly to quell political protest. The Riot Act was overturned in 1967 or 1973, depending on which source you check. In the U.S., the Kent State shootings took place in 1970. Protesters against the Vietnam War were also met by the National Guard. With that many weapons out and tempers high, bad things can happen. Four students were shot dead and many more were injured. It shocked the nation. The government learned that it could no longer stop political protest by reading the Riot Act. I pray that it remembers that lesson today. So to me, there's no doubt that Kent State was a tragedy, but I don't think it was about repealing a riot act, since the riot act was passed in 1715 in England. And our First Amendment of our Constitution guarantees the right of the people to peaceably assemble. And by the time Kent State happened, the full incorporation of the Bill of Rights had occurred. For those who don't know, this is an interesting thing. Do you know that the Bill of Rights was never meant to apply to the states? The First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, you know, the ones that apply to the states are the ones that mention them, like the, the Tenth Amendment. But the restriction of free speech or the restriction of firearms or any of those things were not prohibited to the states. They were prohibited to the federal government. And each state then had its own constitution as a republic where it determined what it could and could not do under the the guides and decisions of its people. And the Supreme Court, over many years, many decades, eventually fully incorporated the Bill of Rights. So when the government sent National Guard troops to put down the protests at Kent State, 
it wasn't under the fact that they just can't protest. It was under the concept that they had become a danger and had exceeded what is a peaceable protest. And if they had handled it the way that they would have been permitted to under the Riot Act of 1715, we would have probably ended up piling you know, bodies into the, the hundreds or thousands. The, the National Guardsmen that were there were there in force, and they were carrying the M1 Garand, which is an eight-round clip-fed magazine that fires the, the modern sporting round, the .30-06 um, uh, is what we call it in the sporting world, uh, eight shots before the clip is ejected and can be then reloaded very quickly and fired again. The, the rifle that, that General Patton said won the World War II uh, for the riflemen uh, of our side. Uh, so if they had gone with no restraint whatsoever and been free to just kill anybody they want to, there would have been a true massacre versus the tragedy that it was. But there's no doubt that our government has decided many times that in spite of the fact that people have the right to peaceably assemble, that when people do it for too long and too effectively, they want it to go away. Like Alex, I pray that they will remember tragedies like Kent State, it seems right now with what's going on with the Bundys in Oregon, they at least are remembering how bad the blowback from things like Ruby Ridge uh, and Waco were. So maybe governments can learn, I don't know, but I still don't trust them. But as I alluded to in the lead-up to this, you're starting to see some of the foundations of why certain things were put in either to our Constitution or then very quickly into the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments. There was a history of these types of things being done by the King of England, and our founders, while flawed men, as we've discussed many times, were smart enough to know that even if the people in power at their time wouldn't do such things, if someone in power in the past had, it would be very likely that they would again, and therefore they put those restrictions in upon the central government and left it to the states to be wise enough to put in restrictions themselves. There's another reason, though, that the Bill of Rights did not apply to the states. To get it done, you had to have the states sign off on it. And the states were fine with restricting the federal government, but weren't necessarily fine with restricting themselves as severely as they had restricted the federal government. So some of it was on some levels to get buy-in. Which, which of the amendments actually applied to the states? Well, the ones they were mentioned in. Uh, that would be the ones that apply to them. So it would really be the Tenth Amendment and to a lesser degree through inference the Ninth. But the rest of the amendments of our Constitution never applied to the states until they were again incorporated by the uh, Supreme Court. And if you doubt that, just Google incorporation of the Bill of Rights. It's something that many people that claim to be astute followers of the Constitution are completely unaware of. Uh, with that, let me remind you, you can help support our show by joining the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. All I'm going to say on that today is just go to the show, uh, the website, thesurvivalpodcast.com, and click on Members to learn more. That's it. Let's get into uh first question today. This one's for Erica Strauss. And for those that don't know, Erica not only knows all kinds of stuff about growing food and preparing it in a really great way, she also knows quite a bit about animals, and she keeps a few ducks on her small property, and she put in a small hand-dug duck pond. And when somebody asked this question, this question was asked by Emily. Uh, I, I remembered reading this little article, I'll put in the show notes today for you as well, about uh, a pond that uh, Erica put in, and she was able to just use cheap kitty litter as a bentonite sealer because some cheap kitty litters are just pretty much bentonite clay 
But what Emily wants to know is how Erica actually filters her duck pond because, well, if you've ever dealt with ducks, they kind of make a mess. So, Erica, how do you deal with all that duck mess in that little pond? Hi, Jack. Hi, TSP community, and um, especially hi to John in West Virginia, who we're all rooting for right now. This is Erica from Northwest Edible calling in to answer a question from Emily in regards to how I manage my backyard small-scale duck pond. So a little bit of background. Emily read a post I put up on my blog where I experimented with using dolomite clay cat litter to seal a mini pond or maybe a large puddle would be a better way to describe it in my backyard. And Emily wants to know how I filter that duck pond. And I think reading between the lines, she wants to know if she should put in a duck pond for her flock of eight or so ducks in suburban Seattle. So first, you know, I want to start with kind of a big fat disclaimer. Some of the stuff I talk about on my site are things that I feel I have a good deal of competence in, a lot of experience in. And so things like food preservation, cooking, um, vegetable growing in the Pacific Northwest, those are things that I'm just thrilled to be able to teach my readers what I've learned. And then some of the things I talk about on my site are big experiments that I'm doing to see what's possible and folks who want can follow along with me and see how these experiments turn out. Well, I have to say that this urban duck pond thing is firmly in the latter experiment category. So Emily, I'm happy to answer your questions about how we filter our pond, but I do want to say straight up that since that post you mentioned came out, we've actually totally reworked that pond. We've enlarged it as our flock of ducks grew, and um, we're actually planning on completely changing it again this summer. So One of the nice things uh, about being on limited space, like uh, we both are, it sounds like, is that the system components that you're dealing with are small enough that you can typically rework things with just a shovel, um, you know, some motivation and a free afternoon. So it's not like when we change things up, it necessarily requires, you know, backhoes or, or something like it might if you were doing large scale earthworks. And I'll also say right up front that I don't think my duck pond experiment has been a screaming success, except insofar as, you know, we keep learning and we keep trying and we keep tinkering until we get closer to that thing that works um, and that fills the role that it needs to fill in our mini homestead. So what I'd like to do first is describe the filtration system we developed that is actually a very effective filter and then uh, talk about the advantages and challenges I've found with our duck pond and um, maybe that will give you a complete picture so you can learn from our experience and kind of make the decision for your own property. First, the filter. Um, this is going to be a little tricky to describe over just audio, but I will do my best. Imagine a 55-gallon rain barrel, uh, something like an old plastic olive barrel or pickle barrel, really big, something like that. We had two of those kicking around, and one of them we converted into our duck pond filter. So this thing is big. It's like the size of an elementary school kid. Um, I, I want to make sure everyone has the right picture here when I talk about a duck pond filter. This isn't some single-layer pass-through screen next to a pump. It's a substantial beast of a filter. So what we did is we turned the bottom section of the rain barrel into what's called a swirl filter. And a swirl filter works by creating a very slow-moving circular current that allows the heavy particulate in the water to fall to the bottom. So you can kind of think of like miners panning for gold, except in this case, the gold we're swirling out is duck poop for the most part. So the water from the duck pond is pumped out 
into this filter uh, with a pretty substantial pump at about one-third of the way up this rain barrel, this converted rain barrel. And the water swirls slowly in that bottom third, and the heaviest stuff filters to the bottom of the rain barrel. And then the top two-thirds of the rain barrel is shoved full of what's called filter media. So you can think of sort of a big circle of plastic mesh all folded in on itself, but four or five dense inches thick. And we actually have three layers of filtration, kind of like three layers of a round cake stacked on top of each other inside the filter. And uh, the filtration screens get finer and finer as they move towards the top of that rain barrel. So the water slowly rises up through each screen in order so that more and more particulate gets trapped at every layer. And the filtration screens we use also promote the growth of beneficial bacteria, which helps to further clean the water. And you guys know this is me, so I have to mention beneficial bacteria in my TSP segment. Um, and it turns out that even you know healthy duck pond water, uh, this is true for koi ponds or whatever as well, needs help from uh, beneficial microbes to stay healthy. Anyway, the upshot of all this is that the water that does make it to the top of that 55-gallon a rain barrel that houses our filtration system is really quite remarkably clean, even if it's been sucked out of some pretty nasty duck pond water. And at the point where it makes it to the top of that 55-gallon drum, then it recirculates back as clean water into the duck pond itself. So just to reiterate, we filter our duck pond with a gravity-based swirl filter in conjunction with three layers of mechanical filtration media, and everything works together extremely well to get the duck muck out of the pond. Now, in terms of maintenance with this system, the big thing is dumping the sludge from the bottom of the filter periodically. And make no mistake, the stuff that falls out, like that gold that we panned, right, is mucky sludge of the highest order. It looks just like soil that if you were to step in it alongside a pond or a river, it would just suck the boot right off your foot. So we're talking about silty, slippery, poop-heavy particulate, which is exactly the kind of stuff that, um, you know, really can help a garden thrive. That stuff is really nutrient dense. So uh, what we did to capture all of this particulate is install a big two inch wide PVC valve at the very bottom of the 55 gallon filter. And when we open this valve every couple of days or as needed, it's more often in the summer, less often in the winter. uh, The sludge from the bottom of that filter will very naturally gravity feed into some mini swales that we carve that will carry that nutrition downhill to our fruit trees. And then if we want to concentrate that fertility somewhere else in the garden, we just pop a five-gallon bucket under the valve um, at the bottom of the 55-gallon filter and uh, fill up the bucket with the sludge and carry that sludge somewhere else on the property. And so this aspect all works extremely well. The filter is very effective. The ability to distribute the nutrition around the yard is excellent. So this is not a small filtration system, and honestly, I think the fact that this much is required to make uh, the duck pond water decently clean for the ducks is kind of a warning sign about small ponds and ducks in the first place. Like, maybe it takes too much work to make this happen, right? But that said, if you're willing to throw money at the pump and money at the filtration media and you're willing to do some regular maintenance, this has worked for us. So if this aspect of the filtration has worked, why did I start this off with a big dire warning about suburban duck ponds? Well, it turns out that filtration is really only one of the issues that we've had to contend with when it comes to our small-scale duck pond. The major issue we've dealt with is actually pond-side erosion. Ducks, ours at least, maybe yours or Jack's are more polite, 
They seem to believe that their mission in life is to swim around their pond and shove their bill into the mud at the pond edges, looking for worms and slug eggs and stuff like that. So the upside of this is that our ducks have noticeably, since last summer, modified the pond edges with their dabbling and undercut areas of support for various trees and perennial plants that we had planted there. So I have a situation where it's pretty obvious to me that my duck pond edge and my plant growth is not in balance with my duck bill destruction. So then I think the question we really have to ask for you, Emily, is, is it possible to have a duck pond in a suburban yard that could ever be in balance? I mean, I think that's really the question we need to ask. So I've had up to 15 ducks on our property, but we currently have five. And five ducks is really not very many ducks. And I would say that the pond that we have is about as big as I would expect a suburban property to be able to really accommodate. And I say that because... Uh, in the greater Seattle area where we both are, you know, suburban doesn't typically mean two or three acres. Suburban typically means maybe a quarter of an acre to a half of an acre tops. And our property is right in the middle there at a third of an acre. And so again, I feel like we have expanded uh, the pond in our yard about as much as we possibly can. Um, so I have a hard time picturing someone being able to do a larger pond than we currently have, uh, again, within that definition of suburban in Seattle real estate. So the thing that concerns me about your situation, Emily, is that you say you're starting with a flock of eight ducks. And I feel like I have a very good sense of what eight ducks will do to a suburban pond. And I just honestly don't know if there's a way to make that carrying capacity work with a permanent duck pond. Now, let me say, I really wish this wasn't the conclusion I had for you. And honestly, I really wish it wasn't the conclusion I had for myself. But this is my honest opinion now, having done the duck pond in suburbia thing for several years. So after all my experimentation and all the duck pond manipulation and all the filtration, what I can tell you is that ducks are a fantastic addition to a homestead, as you know, a really great animal for the Pacific Northwest, ideally suited, but they do make their water filthy in such a hurry, and any in-ground watering solution is going to require some major filtration efforts like I described. And also, the soil-based erosion that happens because of the natural behavior of the ducks is a serious concern for any small pond without rigid sides. And because of this, the carrying capacity of your suburban yard might be fine for eight ducks on pasture, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have the space for a sustainable eight-duck-sized pond. And I hope that makes sense, that differentiation. So if I were in your position, Emily, what I would say honestly is for now, you know, stick to the old familiar solution for ducks in small spaces. Get yourself a kiddie pool or a livestock feed trough, move it around your homestead, dump it every couple of days as you need, and use that water to fertigate around your your property. Now, I'll make you a deal. As I continue to experiment, I will let you know what I find. And if I find a better solution, given the limitations of ducks and ponds and suburban scale property, I will let you know. And if you find something out that is working great for you, you let me know and we'll all learn from each other. So um, that's all the time I have today. Thank you guys so much. This has been Erica from Northwest Edible Life and the International Association of Duck Pond Experimenters. Come say hi anytime at nwedible.com or facebook.com slash nwedible. Thank you, TSP community, for your great questions. Please keep them coming, and I will be back to chat with you in a couple of weeks. Um, I could not agree more. I could not agree more. I think that on that scale... If you're going to put a pond in a backyard where you have ducks, you need to be not thinking about how do I filter the pond, 
so that the ducks can use the pond. I think you need to be thinking about how do I prevent the ducks from getting into the pond so that I can have a, a, a pond that I'm going to grow aquatic vegetation in, maybe some sort of a fish yield or koi or just have for a, a thing of beauty, um, a garden pond. I have two um, six-foot round, four, uh, two-foot deep um, stainless steel stock ponds that I've made into really nice little garden ponds. And the only way I was ever able to get those to the point where I was actually happy with them was to put a little uh, three-foot or two-foot high exclusion fence around both of them to keep the dog from pulling the plants out and to keep the ducks from going in there and pooing. And everything's gotten better since I put that fence in. And I think the idea of putting in ponds in small spaces is great, but if you're going to have ducks in small-scale ponds, my advice is keep them out of there. If anything... They would be let them in for a day, and they don't go back for like uh, a month. But I think that will even throw your pond out of balance. I used exactly what, what Erica said, and I have three acres. And, and it's just because if we could put in ponds here easily instead of the one small pond I was able to put in, I, I would let them have access to ponds all the time. I'd have deep, big, you know, multi-tens of thousands of gallon ponds. But in small situations, and here's all you need to do to convince yourself of this. Start out with kiddie pools. Let your ducks use a kiddie pool for three days before you dump it and look at the bottom of it. And you will just give up on the concept that an actual small hand dug pond is going to support eight ducks. Um, this morning, I dumped a pool that would now have 100 plus ducks, but I still have like, I have five kiddie pools going right now and two 50 gallon uh, stock tanks. And I, one of the kiddie pools, they just really liked it yesterday, I guess. Even when I dumped the water, when I picked it up, it was heavy just to drive it home. There was probably two inches of um, sediment at the bottom of a standard small kiddie pool. So just take that as a little bit of addition to what Erica had to say. Next question we have is for Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer. Uh, and, of course, it's on bees. Uh, pretty simple-sounding one, anyway. It says, Michael, can you explain how and why going to smaller comb size is a good idea? I live in northern Minnesota, USDA Zone 3. I'm a second-year beekeeper. Thanks, Jason. Michael, what say you want small uh, comb size for bees? This is Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company here, taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and needs. I have a question from Jason in Minnesota that is a second year keeper. His question is, can I explain how and why for going small comb size is a good idea? What Jason is asking and talking about is the cell size that bees make when making honeycomb. Around a hundred years ago, uh, the beekeeper started uh, really using foundation. And it was to steer the colony into drawing worker cells and avoiding letting the bees draw drone cells. Drones don't work. They're breeders. So we tried to eliminate a lot of the drones. And as time went on, we realized that as a beekeeper, we could manipulate the size of these cells on the foundation. Uh, the older notion that bigger is better uh, began that mindset. Bigger worker bees can be forged for more nectar and more pollen and making more honey than natural sized bees. So beekeepers increased the foundation size from 4.9 millimeter to 5.4 millimeter where most foundation is today. Unfortunately, this assumption has not been correct. 
raising bees on a larger foundation did indeed create a larger bee up to 30 to 50 percent. Sadly, the productivity did not go up at all. In fact, the larger bees have proven to be less productive and more prone to disease and mite problem as a result for being larger than nature intended. Think of an average human being that nature has intended to be a certain size, healthy and productive, and now had 30 to 50% more body weight and mass. Most people that are carrying that much more weight are typically not as productive or as healthy. In fact, the closer we get to our ideal weight of body mass, the better we feel, and the more energy we have, and less prone to illness. Welcome the theory. The same is true for the honeybee. Uh, we first started doing this upsizing in about 1893, and I think Pinchot uh, Garoski, uh, it was one of them that got the bees, I think, almost to like 5.74 millimeters. But the average foundation size was done by A.E. Root, and it was called the five-cell by inch system, meaning that in every inch there was approximately 4.5 millimeters, uh, which made the cells bigger. Um, we went from this uh, 4.8 cell per inch to equivalent of 5.6 in this inch. And you can read all about this in the ABC XYZ of bee culture in the 1945 edition in the pages of, I think, about 120 to about 130. And uh, this development talks about how to upsell the bees for bigger production, and it really didn't happen. And when you shop for bees, ask for if they are small cell size bees or not. It was one of the largest losers that I had is that when I bought foundation, I bought large foundation and I purchased small bees. And the bees could not, uh, the, the queen was uh, too big to lay in the small foundation and I wasn't getting larva and I lost a lot of hives. So when you shop, uh, make sure your foundations and bees are the correct. Um, most organic bee producers uh, are using more small cell foundation in their colonies or they're simply let the bees draw their own comb without giving foundation. And like top bar beekeeping, they, sick out, they seek out these particular type of bees for their hives. And the good news, you can have small bees in a top bar hive, Langstroth hive, or any other type of hive if that matters, as long as you use the larger foundation size for your bees and regress them to their natural size by going to a 5.4 millimeter, 5.1 millimeter, and finally to a 4.9, gradually dropping them down. Probably one of the biggest advantages is controlling mites. Two types of mites that can destroy a colony in short order. One is the tracheal mite, which is probably guessed by its name, attacks the bees in their trachea. Well, guess what? A trachea mite cannot fit down the trachea of a small bee in a small bee cell. Only the ones raised in larger cell foundations. That's a winner for you and your bees. Small cells generally emerge two days sooner and are capped sooner than larger bees, which does not sound like a big deal, but just eight hours is a difference in capping time. can do a large thing uh, in a couple days less time for emerging uh, and controlling the lifestyle of the varroa mite. So small cell beekeepers do not even need to treat vola because the bee's natural cell size and emerging time that keeps the mites under control so they do not get in there and they're not able to produce because the capping times of the smaller cell bees. Small cell bees are the way to go and are going back and are making it just as fast as we can make them. We're going back to how they've been.
I have many hives, and I'm going smaller bees. All my Russian bees are small bees, and I love them. And I make nukes, and they sell fast, and they sell for about $200 a piece. If you want more info on natural bee cells, I have a link that I've enclosed for Jack, so you can see this. Uh, hopefully this has helped you guys on uh, finding out about larger bees and smaller bees. It helps you think about why we're going to screen boards now, because the open air, just like bees hanging up in the air, mites fall. They're not allowed to jump back up inside. Beetles don't jump back up inside. Wax moth doesn't jump back inside. So open in, wireframe bottoms, smaller bees going to more essential oils. These things are helping the bees. And if I think if you look at going smaller bees, you're going to see more productivity and more bigger populations because there's more bees per inch. Hey, I am the Bee Whisper telling you get your honey from local keeper you respect. Shop at Cottage Industries because we all had to start someplace and help your fellow man. For one day you may need help too. What a great way to sign off there from Michael. Michael is one of the most solid human beings I've ever met in my life. And, uh, you know, I, I think Michael is an example. He would tell you himself of how the types of things we talk about, uh, producing your own food, setting up small businesses, teaching children, uh, those are all things that are very big to Michael, the self-sufficient, self-reliance lifestyle, uh, empowering other people, teaching other people can turn a life around. Uh, because I don't know the full details, but Michael's told me many times that before he had a motorcycle accident where he almost died and came back to this lifestyle, he wasn't really happy with the person that he was. I don't know who that guy was, but I know who the guy is now, and I'm very grateful to have Michael as part of our team. Thank you, Michael, for another great uh, answer. Next question I have here is from uh, someone you guys would know, Jesse Techmeyer, who's uh, the guy that, that pretty much ran the Perma Ethos Farm in West Virginia, Eliza Spring, for two years. is now going off and do some of his own things. He's got an RV now, and he has a question about solar. So who would I send that to? Stephen Harris, of course. But Stephen Harris hates all salt. No, not quite so much. Steve, can you tell us uh, how, you, how you would advise Jesse on this question? Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in to answer your question. Jesse, welcome. You get the lightsaber award for the month. And I understand you are a real good friend of Jack's and a real big friend of TSP, so I am calling in to answer your question. Now, Jesse writes, Stephen, I have a 38-foot fifth wheel that I would like to use for boondocking off-the-grid adventure. I know you're usually not enthused about solar, but I think in an RV situation, it can quickly pay for itself by allowing the RV to not be used anywhere. No need to, well, to be used anywhere. No need to plug in at $55 a night campgrounds. The system could pay for itself in 27 days of use. Now, Jesse, I know from further reading that you want to put 800 watts of solar panels on top of your fifth wheel. If you go to an RV plug-in place, whether it's for RVs or it's a campground, you're getting 30 to 50 amps of service. It can run your entire RV at once. It can run the AC. It can run the microwave. It can run the shower pump, the water pump, the illumination, and the, and the TV all at the same time because you got 30 to 50 amps worth of service. If you got 800 watts of solar panels on your roof, you got six. 
That is the single digit six amps of service. And you only have that for about six mean solar hours a day because the sun's rising, the sun's setting, you're at different angles, so you're not getting optimum. It comes out to be about what we call six mean solar hours a day. So you just can't take your price of $1,500 for the solar and battery system and divide it by $55 a night and you get 27 days of repayment. Because the two are not equal in the least. One is like having a grape. One is like having a food forest. You know, you can't say the grape is going to feed you for 27 days like a food forest is going to. It's not going to work that way. So you go on to write, not to mention I could plug the solar system into a home battery bank when I'm not out roaming the country. Well, you got an RV, you got 800 watts of panels installed on the top, which is a lot. You got it integrated into the charge controller in the RV and to the battery system, and now you got a battery bank in the house. To run the solar panels and bypass the RV to the house, you'd have to have them set up in series, so you get like 150 volts, and then you'd have to have a multi-point power tracking and MPPT controller inside the house to convert the high voltage from the panels over into a lower voltage for the batteries. And then you would have to run the cable in a nice, neat way through the wall of the house from the RV into the house into the basement. I mean, the MPPT controller alone is $200 plus, plus the thickness of the wire running from the, from the panels to the house and everything else. You would never pull up your RV next to the house and use the solar panels to recharge the batteries in your battery bank in the house when you can spend 50 to $100 on a battery charger that plugs into the wall and it's the size of smaller than a basketball and it will sit there all day, all night, 24-7 and charge up your battery bank. So I don't think it's really practical to use the solar panels on the RV to recharge uh, your batteries in your house on a daily basis. You write, I have tentative plans for a solar kit from windynation.com laid out below. Do you have any thoughts or suggestions? The kit will cost me $1,500 for 800 watts of solar panels and two GC2 golf cart batteries. And I already have two GC2s. Well, one, for that price, the solar panels are actually cheaper on Amazon. You can go to solar1234.com and you can go see the Renogy, R-E-N-O-G-Y solar panels I have up there. Amazon will deliver them to you 100 watts for less than $150. So the solar panels are cheaper that way. So the other thing is you can't mix batteries. You can't take a pair of old GC2s and just add on two more GC2s or four or six or eight more GC2s on it because the two you have are already degraded, and adding on more will just bring down the sum of the batteries to the two degraded batteries that you have. It won't add, it will subtract. So you would have to buy four GC2 batteries to go into the RV and take your old GC2s out of the RV and put them into the house as a separate home battery bank system. Now that would work for you. be more money, but that's the way you would do it. An 800-watt system, you write, is pretty big, and I figure even in the winter, it'll provide a decent output. Eh, sorry, incorrect. Uh, in the winter time, depending upon your latitude and everything else, you can typically have about 60% of the output 
of your panels from winter to summer or summer to winter. Yeah, 60%. So your 800 watt panels would be 400 and some odd panels, watts. And now if you got your panels laying flat on the RV instead of angled towards the sun, most people don't realize that if you lay your panels flat, depending upon the time of year, you'll be generally having 25% less energy hitting the solar panel when it's laying flat than when it's angled towards the sun. So 75% because it's not angled and 60% because it's wintertime gives you about 380 watts for six mean solar hours of the day out of the 800 watts of panels, so they're not giving you a decent output even in the wintertime. You add, I may eventually add a windmill to take advantage of the times when the sun is not shining but the wind is blowing, such as during stormy weather. I would not advocate putting up a $1,000 or more of windmill on an RV to take advantage of when the wind is blowing during the thunderstorm. It does not make financial sense to me. Uh, for most of you who have been writing to me about wind energy, windmills, you got to be in the wind zone in the United States, the wind corridor. And there are very few areas outside of the wind corridor that are really good for wind. And then for wind, uh, wind Jenny, you got to have up, up at least 40 feet in the air typically 80 feet in the air is what's the accepted is what you want to put up a wind generator for so you're many times spending a lot more money on the tower and the guy wires than you are on the actual wind jenny itself let alone the wiring going from up there all the way down to your house to your battery bank now i've already pissed in your cornflakes sorry about that now i'm going to tell you what will work you can put the solar system on top of your RV. It will power the house load of the RV, the lights, the water pumps, and everything else. It'll power your microwave even for a little bit. It won't even begin to touch your, your AC system, so forget about that completely. Your furnace, you're not really going to be able to run your furnace off the solar panels off of the RV as well. So, But you can run almost everything else in the RV off 800 watts of panels. So what you want is you want to get a Honda EU2000i a generator and you want to get the external fuel tank from uh, vmsales.com victor mike s-a-l-e-s dot com it, great guy great company makes a three gallon fuel tank that goes onto the honda and it'll run for two and a half days straight off of six gallons of fuel so what you want to do is you want to have the solar system to run the small house load and the generator to run the bigger things this will work for you this is a hybrid configuration so when you, if you have to run the furnace all night because you're in a cold environment you run the honda generator you start it up and you let it power the furnace all night while you're sleeping the honda is really pretty quiet uh, it's the summertime and you're in the desert and you want air conditioning. You start up the Honda and you run your air conditioning and everything in the RV. Now, the thing to remember is the Honda is only 20 amps, so you can only run one major thing in the RV at a time. If you're running your AC, you can't run the microwave at the same time, so you got to turn off the AC and run the microwave, heat up your soup and everything else, and then turn the, the air conditioner back on. You can run the AC and the water pumps and the lights and the TV and everything. It's just big things. Microwaves are a lot of power. ACs are a lot of power. Your furnace is a fair amount of power. So you use the generator for running the big things, and you use the solar panels and your battery bank for running the smaller things. 
Sorry about that. Someone came a knocking, a knocking at my door. And I did not who they know who they were forevermore. So, anyways, Jesse, this will work for you. This is a solution. And then, then now you do have something where you can say, I'm saving $55 a night instead of plugging in. You got full functionality in the fifth wheel and everything else. And trust me, you're going to be a happy camper if you get the Honda EU2000i and the external fuel tank from VM Sales. I own it. I've used it. It's awesome. Okay. This is not just something I'm saying get this is reality now for reality as you guys all know all the stuff all my free classes i've done with jack are at steven1234.com however i have something new from you that i announce i have a new video you can see the promo of it and it's great stuff uh, a violent fire starter that costs 10 cents. You've never seen it before. It's at bugout1234.com. And I just finished editing the promo video on how to keep your cell phone powered anywhere in the world. And I show you some awesome stuff, especially for those who travel through airports. The free promo video is at cellphone1234.com. Hey, Jack, another 1234 website. Who'd figure? Anyways, go check it out. The videos aren't fully released yet, but you can go see the promo. Sign up for my email. You'll get emailed the second that they come out. Wonderful question, Jesse. I'm glad I was able to help you. And for all of you guys, email in some more questions, and we'll pick them out and put them on the air for you. See ya. Bye. Great stuff from Steve, and it was it was killing me. It was killing me that he took so long to get to the generator, because the first thing I thought was generator, and especially for traveling uh, and wanting to be having an RV, wanting to be able to run that RV, uh, that, that generator. Uh, the EU2000 Honda is the perfect, perfect solution. So why would we expect anything less from Steve? But as I was listening, I was going, Honda generator, Honda generator. But, yeah, we got there, and he took the time to explain why you'd want to get there, so that's great. Next question I have is for Brian Black. It's about building an AR pistol and its applications for home defense. Brian, what say you on this one? Hey, PSC, this is Brian Black from ITS Tactical, answering a expert counsel question from Farley, who asks, I'm looking to build an AR-15 pistol in 5.56. I'm thinking of going with a 10.5-inch barrel for a compromise between compactness and making the most of the round. What are your thoughts on barrel length for shortened barrel rifles or pistols in rifle calibers? So, first off, anytime you add length to a barrel, you're increasing the velocity. There's some other things at play there, such as how much powder is in the round you're shooting. But once you start narrowing down that barrel length, you're decreasing velocity. And that might be a good thing depending on the distance, uh, the, the effective range that you're trying to go for. So barrel length is kind of subjective to really what you're trying to accomplish with the rifle. If it's going to be a home defense rifle, the shorter barrel might make sense. You know, you don't need increased velocity to get that round out to seven, 800 yards as you might uh, with, you know, a home defense scenario. So um, I'm not a huge advocate anyway of ARs in the home. I think that the uh, the effective range of those is um, pretty large, and the velocity coming out of that AR round is, is, uh, is likely to go through a wall unless you kind of know what you're doing with, with rounds and things like that. But that's just kind of an aside in my personal opinion. But um, the shorter the barrel length, you know, obviously will help you in negotiating corners and things like that if you're in kind of a close quarters scenario like a home. So that's the place where, you know, more compact barrels and shorter barrels come into play and it might be a benefit in that regard. 
So those are just a couple of my my suggestions on uh, the compromise between the uh, the compactness or shortness of a, a ten and a half inch barrel or a short round or a short barrel rifle. Um, but then once you broach the or breach the uh, the sixteen inch length, so meaning you get it shorter than sixteen, you're going to have to either permanently attach a flash driver to bring the overall length to sixteen and a half inch or sixteen inches, um, or apply as an pay a two hundred dollar tax stamp. So that's just something to consider as well. Um, you, you know, you mentioned pistols. There are some things that have to do with pistols where you might not have to get a tax stamp, but uh, I won't kind of get into that on this question, but that's something to look into as well. Hopefully that helps, and thanks for the question. Keep them coming. Remember to check out ICS for your daily dose of skill sets and resources to help you explore your world and prevail against all threats. www.itsfactual.com. Thanks, guys. I don't really disagree with Brian, and I, I don't personally consider the AR platform, short barreled or not, to be a great home defense tool. And I just answered a question yesterday very similar to this, so I won't rehash that here. But suffice to say, my primary go-to for home defensive weapons is a good quality handgun that you know how to use well. For a, a whole bunch of reasons you can listen to yesterday for. The one thing I'll say about though the AR, and I used to teach the exact thing Brian's saying here, and then I came across a website called Box of Truth, and I looked at a whole bunch of different things where they use the Box of Truth, which is basically a whole bunch of boards and how far will a round penetrate through them, uh, including using what's normally in uh, a home, which is drywall. So if we miss the intruder and we hit a wall, what is the likelihood the round will go through the wall? and possibly injure or kill somebody on the other side, etc. And I had always felt that the AR would over-penetrate compared to something like, let's say, a, a jacketed hollow point from a 40 Smith & Wesson or 9mm, 45 ACP. And, and the truth is that it's not that ARs don't go through walls. It's that handgun rounds do too. And... Unless you're hitting a stud, which I don't think if you're going to miss, you're also going to line up and make sure you hit a stud. When you hit drywall, it does very little to slow down rounds. And in fact, many handgun rounds actually penetrate more drywall effectively than a frangible round out of an AR-15 because it's such a high velocity, it begins to fragment, etc. But it still goes through four layers of drywall quite easily. So if you're concerned with over-penetration in home defense... There's not really a good option other than dropping down to something like a shotgun with, like, birdshot, uh, which is actually way more effective than a lot of people would lead you to believe. I mean, I'll put it to you this way. If a bad guy comes in your home and you are 7 to 10 feet, which is the average distance away, and you put a load of six-shot, you know, good old squirrel, copper-plated, buffered six-shot into his chest, he's going to have a bad day. If you put into his groin, he's probably not going anywhere, and he's probably no longer a threat. But do you have time to think like that is, I guess, the, the question when you're dealing with life and death situations in homes. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't make the decision based on, oh, this round has a longer effective range. I would make the decision on what actually works best for home defense. Um, I know that Brian actually has a tax stamp and has an SBR AR. And he likes it and he trains with it and he, it's a great tool and it's a wonderful thing to own and what have you. But I also know that if there's a bump in the night, he's probably going to go to his sidearm first. Because at the ranges inside a home, it's, it's more than sufficient for the job. 
And the other thing, a lot of this stuff with the tactical training and short-barreled rifles or the carbines and whatever, these tactics are generally more driven around the concept of multi-team member movement where when you're in a home defense situation, it's a lot different. I'll leave it at that. Listen to yesterday's show if you want to. The next one I have here is for Old Doc Bones, and uh, it is an interesting one. It says, uh, my question is for Doc Bones, how can eye injuries be treated in a post-hit-the-fan situation? It's from Joel. Doc Bones, how do we deal with eye injuries in a situation where the primary caregiver or the highest level of medical uh, assistance available is us. Hey, Survival Podcast fans. This is Joe Alton, MD of doomandbloom.net, that old Dr. Bones, and my mission is to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. Today's expert counsel question comes from Joel from Northwest Washington. Joel asks, how can eye injuries be treated in a post-SHTF situation. Things I'm thinking of are as simple as abrasions or as complicated as debris lodged in the eye itself. Joel, the human body is a miracle of engineering. The conformation of your skull is such that your eyes are slightly recessed in bony sockets, which helps protect them from injury. Despite this, there are many different activities of daily living or daily survival that can be traumatic to your eyes. Some of them, like burning your eye with a curling iron, it probably isn't going to happen in a collapse, but flying splinters from chopping wood or grease splatter from cooking still will be an issue. The grand majority of these injuries are avoidable with a little planning. You should probably be encouraging your people to use eye protection for a lot of daily survival chores. Few people wear eye protection, for example, when they're cooking outdoors, but conditions aren't as controlled as indoors and injuries can occur. Yeah, I know it sounds like overkill, but I guarantee that someone in your group will one day injure their eye doing something that eye protection goggles would have prevented from happening. Now, usually the victim is going to present with you with eye pain. In addition, expect the eye to be tearing up and the conjunctiva, which is the membrane that covers the white part of the eye, will be red or very bloodshot. They'll be blinking fast and furious. Now, a foreign object is going to be the most likely cause of the problem. It's up to you to find it. Use a moist cotton swab or Q-tip to lift and evert the eyelid, that is, turn it inside out. This doesn't hurt. This will allow you to effectively examine the area. Now, a syringe full of clean water can be used as irrigation to flush the foreign object out, or you can use an eye cup filled with the solution, tilt their head back, flush it that way. Alternatively, you can touch the foreign object lightly with a Q-tip to dislodge it. It'll be rare for a foreign object to actually impale the eye. You'll need a high-speed impact for this to occur, and that's mostly seen in things like explosions. This will be difficult to remove if it does happen, and even in the best of circumstances, expect some scarring and some loss of vision if it's on the cornea or pupil. Let's say you looked and there is no foreign object. Take a really close look at the cornea. The cornea is a clear layer of tissue over the colored part of the eye, which is called the iris. And it exists for purposes of protection and also to help with focusing. Now, when this layer of tissue is scratched or damaged, it's usually called a corneal abrasion. This type of injury is pretty common even today, even in those, or especially in those actually, who wear contact lenses. The patient will probably complain to you that they feel that there is a grain of sand in their eye. 
Eye doctors place a dye called fluorescein staining on the eye so that they can evaluate and see the actual scratch. You may or may not see the scratch, but you should consider that that is the most likely thing that has happened. Now, that corneal abrasion is going to need to rest and heal. After cleaning the eye out with water and using antibiotic eye drops, if you have them, Cover the closed eye with an eye pad and tape. Now, many recommend covering both eyes as the open eye is going to move around and the closed eye will follow its movements. And that's not really giving the eye rest. Ibuprofen is useful for pain relief. And over the next few days, the eye should heal by itself. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. And hey, be sure to check out our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy and our podcast, the Survival Medicine Hour on blogtalkradio.com. Thanks again. Is it just me or when he was talking and he said cover it with an iPad, did anybody else actually see like an electronic iPad in their head? I did. Even though it had nothing to do with it, I just found that amusing. And I know somebody, uh, I know a bunch of somebody's out there like iPad, yeah. Like my kid has one of those. Anyway, um, good advice, better than I could have ever done. That's That's a classic example right there of why we have the expert counsel to go into all these things. And let me say something about eye protection. I often say that I'm blind in my left eye. It's not completely true or untrue. It's it's mostly true. Uh, my vision uncorrected in my left eye is 20-200. Yes, so you have 20-20 vision. In my left eye, I have 20-200 vision. My eye doctor, the last time I went with corrective lenses, said I can get up to about 2080, which would make it legally uh, possible for me to get a driver's license if I were to lose my right eye, which is my good eye. My response was, holy shit, blind people are driving. I would, if I lost my right eye, with the vision I have in my left eye, even with corrective lenses, I would not drive a car. I would not feel I was being responsible. And I, I really believe that the vision I'm capable of with, you know, how many lines of vision when you get tested is because I'm really, really, really trying. But generally looking around with my left eye, with I would cause a wreck. I would hurt somebody. Uh, I would probably be able to shoot a little bit, but my, my life as a, a skilled shooter and a skilled hunter would be over. So I am very leery of damage to my eye. So when I, you know, one thing I always do is I buy inexpensive eyeglasses, but I make sure I have shatterproof lenses. And I pretty much, whenever I'm doing anything uh, at all outdoors, I have at least regular lenses on. If I'm doing anything like running a chainsaw, power tool, uh, anything like that, I make sure I'm wearing, uh, you know, additional eye protection. Um, and I, I think that Doc Bones is right. Sometimes we can feel like things are overkill. I think it's preposterous that, like, we have laws that a kid can't ride a bicycle without a freaking helmet on now. I did all kinds of crazy things on a bike, but we also have to be like individually responsible and think about things and what are you doing and what is the potential for actual damage to your eye. I know the couple times I've had something fly into my eye or something like that, uh, my right eye, it was a very, like, you immediately think, oh my God, because it's not like, you know, having severe damage to one eye. I already have, like, from birth, severe damage to one eye, and it puts it in perspective 
And I just advise everybody to take that advice with some common sense and think about it. Last question for the expert counsel. I do have one more today. I have one for me that I'm going to take today to round things out. I thought it was perfect for this show, and it fits with some stuff we've been discussing on Facebook at the Regen Ag Group as well. But before that, let's hear from Nick Ferguson. We have a question for Nick Ferguson about establishing a large amount of elderberries and how to do that and what to do with that. Uh, Nick, go ahead and take that away. Hey, Joe in Vermont. So you're planting half an acre of elderberries in the spring. I think that's really cool. Um, with weed control, I don't think weed control is going to be nearly as big of an issue as um, you seem to think. If you want to use plastic mulch and plant through it, go right ahead. Um, you'll probably want to put some other type of mulch on top of that to keep them from, from baking. They have really shallow root systems. And, uh, you know, I don't know what your soil types are like, your soil type is like. So, you know, you might want to keep that in mind for what type of soil you have with your irrigation. But I know you said that you can, uh, um, install drip irrigation. So if you go with the plastic mulch, I think you should definitely use drip irrigation. As for white clover, um, white clover takes a while to get established and is very low growing. So anything that grows faster than white clover, if you're not mowing it all the time, is going to overtake your white clover. The main reason why white clover works so well in lawns is because people keep everything else mowed down and so it doesn't have a lot of uh, competition. So if you're going to be mowing it a lot, white clover should work. But what I would do is I would start out with something like if you're not using the plastic mulch, if you're going with um, sowing things to suppress weeds, then I would go with something like annual rye, wheat, oats, hairy vetch, white clover, maybe crimson or uh, medium red clover, those kinds of things. Partridge pea would be great. Partridge pea will get up like four or five feet tall, though. Now, you can knock it down. And keep it kind of trimmed lower. But it does a really good job at shading out other weeds and keeps your soil really clean. And it is, uh, it will reseed very readily and it should do well for you up there. And I would add in some comfrey. Comfrey and elderberry will both really enjoy the manure and higher moisture levels that the other one likes. And the comfrey will like the shelter the elderberry will give it, and the elderberry will benefit from the shading and domination of the lower plant level that comfrey does so well, because comfrey does a good job at shading out the space around it. And I just, I think that they fit really well together. And as for spacing, they will, uh, they'll, they'll spread through runners underground, so you'll eventually have a long hedge that will get really dense and at that point your only real weed issue is going to be pioneer species tree species coming up in in the shelter of the elderberries so the spacing really is entirely dependent on how quickly you want that uh, that row filled in but generally people elect to plant from six to eight feet apart and I would give each row at least 15 feet of space between rows because they're going to spread out. You know, you're probably going to want to keep a, a hedge um, that's going to be about eight foot 
in width with its canopy. And so you'll have four feet on either side. So you've got eight foot total coming into your center lane and, you know, give you enough room in there to maneuver without having branches smack you in the face and poke your eye out. I'd give it at least 15 feet of space between the rows. Now, they are going to spread into your laneway, your access. So you're probably going to need to have that mowed. But good thing is they're really easy to keep contained with regular mowing. Just take whatever equipment you're going to be using. So if you have a tractor or whatever, or if you're actually using commercial harvesting for these things on half an acre, I kind of doubt that. But take whatever your equipment is, estimate your necessary working width based on your equipment. So let's say your equipment is 8 foot wide and you need a little bit extra room, so you say 10 feet wide, 10 or 12 feet, and then you add 8 to 16 feet to that number to give you your row separation distance because your canopy of your plants are going to take up anywhere from 8 to 16 feet. But since you're only planting a half acre, you will likely be working and harvesting this by hand, if I had to guess. So I'd fit as many rows in there as possible and keep them tight because you'll just be able to get a whole lot more production out of it. Oh, and one more thing. It is not critical to have multiple cultivars for cross-pollination, but it is advisable. You will get a larger crop if you have several cultivars in close proximity. Love to hear that you're going to be planting a lot of these. I think they're a fantastic plant, great flavor, great medicinal. I just harvested 65 plants, and hopefully I'll be able to turn those 65 newly dug plants into 400 or so by next fall through root cuttings and splitting the crowns and hardwood cuttings. Anyways, great question. I'm Nick. You can reach me through email, nick at homegrownliberty.com, and you can head over to my website to check out my new podcast. Talk to y'all later. More great advice from another great expert council member. How about Nick Ferguson with uh, elderberry cultivation? Um, it's one of the, the best crops to cultivate, by the way, in my opinion. It is an incredible medicinal. It, it really is, and I'll, I'll just leave it at that. It's easy to grow and uh, easy to propagate. There's a lot of different ways to propagate it. Nick's talked about that before. And I believe, I could be incorrect, but I believe when he said freshly dug plants, he wasn't talking about like from his propagation bed. I know he did a bunch with seeds this last year, but I think he harvested a whole bunch of wild elderberry just found somewhere and just dug up the roots and when they're dormant and brought them home. I, I think I remember seeing a post spot like that from him recently. So I think that's what he's talking about. So that's always another option that there's a lot of great uh, elderberry is a native species, even though a lot of the cultivars are European elders. Um, we do have uh, a lot of elders here in the States that are either you know native or they are European cultivars that have gone off the reservation. And that's a great way to add some of that diversity that Nick was talking about at the end, too. Even if you, you have multiple cultivars, you know, planting a few uh, wild elders that you brought in, as long as they're the same species, uh, you, you, you can get more diversity in your genetics there for cross-pollination. All right, so with that, I want to answer uh, one question. came in, broke the rules, but I'm going to answer it anyway. Uh, with the fact that the rules were broken in mind to take it for myself. This is the question. It says, TSP expert in the subject line, just like it's supposed to. No expert panel member mentioned. It's, remember when you send in a question for an expert panel member, tell me who you want to ask. 
Uh, don't leave it to me. I might miss it. I might miss the question in my screening because usually I throw the expert panel questions into the expert panel folder. And when I write up all the stuff for the expert panel members, I'm looking for questions for Doc Bones. I put in Bones, you know, and I look for all the stuff with Bones in it. And I go through it kind of in order and pick out a couple of good questions for him. Or I'll put Ferguson for Nick Ferguson or Falk for Ben Falk and what have you. Well, I found this one and there was nobody on it anyway. And I thought I can answer this. And this is something I'm experiencing, you know, gaining experience with myself right now so that I have an answer for this question for people because people are running into this left and right. And I do believe I have the best answer, uh, for most of these situations. It says Jack. I want to raise animals for food, such as chicken or ducks. However, I live in a suburb that does not allow any livestock animals. What do you recommend? Do I do it anyway and tell the city to screw off, or should I purchase meat from a local source and also hunt? Thanks, Jack. Great show. I'm working toward personal liberty with me and my own. I know I will never get all the liberty I want, as my wife wants suburbia hell, and I would rather live where I can smell pig poo in the northern woods of Minnesota. Uh, the answer to your question is one of two animals, and they are not chickens and they are not ducks. If you just want a meat yield, it's almost impossible to, to beat rabbits, and you don't have livestock. You have pet rabbits that happen to have babies that happen to disappear. Um, and you can probably do that, and no one will ever bother you. The other option, and the one that I think makes more sense as being a more diverse product, easier for people to kill when they have to. A lot of people don't really like killing furry little bunnies. Though if you keep meat rabbits, you may find yourself not thinking they're so cute after a while. Um, and also produces an ongoing supply of food is quail. Because you mentioned chickens and ducks. Let's, let's, talk, let's talk about the feasibility. If your city said, you know what? You can have a dozen ducks or a dozen chickens, and we won't do anything. And you weren't going to deal. Because here's what's going to happen. If you tell the city to screw off, figuratively, not literally, because if you tell them you're doing it and they come down on you, you kind of brought it down. But you just do it. One of your neighbors is going to bitch. And the department is making you sad is going to come out there, and you're going to have to have a fight. Now, if you're willing to engage in that fight to extend uh, the rights of others within your neighborhood, and you think you can win and you want to engage in that fight and try to get something passed, God bless you, go for it, we need people doing it. But, assuming what you actually want is the ability to produce food for your family on a suburban lot in the form of meat, it's hard to beat quail. And you'll also get eggs as a byproduct then. So let's talk about what you could do. And again, you don't have livestock, you have pets. And this is another thing. When, when animals are in a cage, or at least where they can't be seen or heard... They don't tend to attract the department of making you sad. All right? And they are a pet bird. And what we could do is we could put in a, a caging system. This could be outside with a kind of a three-sided structure where no one can see into it, which would make your life a lot easier for maintenance and cleanup. It could be in a garage. It could be in a shed. It could be wherever works for you. And in that system, we could have... Four cages, two feet by two feet, and maybe one large cage that's four feet by two feet. And then we have to think about the fact that we're going to have litter. We can either have cages, again, that are in a stack system that have slide-outs underneath that, that we can remove manure with, 
or we can set them somewhere where maintenance is a lot easier, everything falls through like a, like a rabbit hutch, and we just take the stuff and clean it up. In each one of those cages, without even getting close to overstocking quail, we could put five birds, five hens, and maybe we keep a couple males out of each rotation and figure out what to do with them. Maybe we even give a male or two their own little cage so we only have breeding going on we want to and everybody's less stressed. Okay, So one more little cage for, for a couple males to, to, to get really randy for the girls when they get the opportunity to breed. And in that bigger cage, that's our grow-out cage for our new cycle of birds. Okay, These are our birds that, you know, once they're out of a brooder, they're no longer the size of a golf ball, they need to grow out for a while so we can figure out which ones we want to keep and which ones we want to put in the freezer. So we have them in like a much larger cage. We can even do this with kind of a tractor if we can get away with that. I don't know what you can get away with. But this all could be indoors. Or it could all be in a shed with maybe a small window unit air conditioner or something. You can do this and never be seen and have nobody have any idea what's going on. Those 20 hens will produce the true number is damn close. Once they're at about eight to nine weeks, they will start pooping out about one egg per bird per day. And they lay on some kind of a weird cycle where the hours are shorter than a full day because I get eggs every morning and every evening from my birds. But on average, it's about one a day per female once they hit laying age. Let's say that's not the case. Let's say we're going to get an average from 20 birds, 15 eggs. Times 30 is 450 eggs from 20 quail per month. Because they don't take Saturday and Sunday off. Okay? That's equivalent to 80 to 90 chicken eggs. 80 to 90. You have to start asking yourself, how many families really use more than, let's say, four dozen eggs a, 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 a month? Most people use about a dozen eggs a week. If you use two dozen eggs a week, you're right in where you need to be, and you got your egg meats net, you're done. Now the meat's a byproduct. Okay. If you, if you eat approximately a dozen eggs a week, then your quail eggs will be more than sufficient to give half for you and sell off half, and you can probably at that rate pay for their feed. Now, you're not producing their feed in your own backyard, but they're paying for their feed. They are now a net zero cost on feed. And quail eggs will sell anywhere between 8 and $10 per 30-pack, depending on who you're selling them to. With that small quantity, you only need one or two regular customers, and you're done. And you're done. Okay? Now, now, start thinking about how that works out, right? Now I've got birds that pay for themselves. When it comes time to butcher them, I pick the quail up, turn them upside down and backwards, cut his head off with a pair of scissors, snip his wings off, okay? Let him let him finish flipping around, cut off cut off the feet, pull open the, the skin, cut the backbone out, yank it out, pull out the heart and liver if I want it, set that aside, pull the skin off, Dip it in some water, throw it in some other water to cool down, and the whole thing takes about one minute a bird. Which means I can process 20 birds in 20 minutes, and I'm done. I can put all the stuff in a garbage bag, roll it up, and throw it in the freezer on garbage day, throw it in the trash, and it goes away. I can compost, I can feed it to dogs. But anyway, the amount of waste I have is pretty insignificant for 30 to 40, I'm sorry, 20 to 40 birds. So now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start a cycling process. And I'm going to keep my quail at about two months to eight months of age 
when they're in their prime laying condition, when they're giving me an egg a day, and then I'm going to kill them. Right before I'm going to kill them, eight weeks before their graduation date to bacon wrap deliciousness, what I'm going to do is hatch out a new group that's at least double the number of quail that I'm going to need to replace that group that's going to graduate to bacon wrap deliciousness. So at least 40. I'm probably going to hatch 60 to hedge my bets. I'm going to grow out those 60 birds, and I'm going to select from them the best-looking, healthiest females to replace my 20, and the other females and all the males are going to turn into 40 more bits of bacon-wrapped deliciousness. So right about the same time, I'm going to put 40 from my coals and 20 from my recycled coals, 60 birds, into my freezer. Each two of them make a pretty nice meal. Okay, now... <laughs> That's 30 meals. But the dollar value, if you go to like a gourmet store or whatever, you usually find quail sell for about $5 a bird. And Brad Davies, who's been doing this for a while, who sells eggs and his you know, surplus coals, and he does a lot more than this. He does about 2,000 birds, okay, and almost 20,000 eggs in a garage every year. He sells the coal quails, the meat quails, clean just the way I said, for $5 a bird. And he's not making a fortune on it or anything like that, but well, this is not costing money. This is making money. All cash, just saying. I don't think you can keep up with the meat production with a quail stack with you know 20 primary layers and coals that you can with, let's say, rabbits on that scale, unless you go where you're really, you know, you're you're hatching eggs every four to five weeks and you're growing them out to six weeks. I think you actually can. You can actually you can actually probably produce more with quail easier with less work. But for really small scale, and you're only going to do these in these mega cycles, I guess rabbit would produce more meat for you. But again, I've got to kill a rabbit, I've got to skin a rabbit, I've got to deal with a rabbit. A quail's a bird. This is like keeping a big parakeet. And here's the magic in the quail. This is what people don't get when they start trying to do comparisons to chickens. Well, calories in and calories out, number of eggs per year. And people will say something like, you know, so-and-so chicken produces 220 eggs a year. That bird does not produce 220 eggs a year in its first year. From, from, week, from week one to week 22 to 26, somewhere in there, usually at 24 weeks, that bird produces zero eggs. Zero. And then you have a six-month cycle where that bird is at really at peak. Somewhere there's a seasonality of a lull in laying. When that bird hits 18 months, it's going to molt. That's a six-week process. Its laying goes to very, very low during that period. And to recycle and bring in your next batch of laying hens, you have to. they take somewhere between 22 and 26 weeks to be ready to go. So, in the end, what you end up with is four, if you're doing this in a suburb, what, four to six hens with a meat value of almost nothing? Coal-laying hens are not a high-value meat product. They're just not. So, and then I've got a six-month period where I have to have a double head count. A single quail female, if you take the timeline, if her and a chicken are born on the same day and you care for them all the way through, and the quail starts laying on the eighth week, will lay about 80 to 90 eggs before the chicken lays the first egg. 
Really think about that. And I probably should do a whole show with all the lessons I'm learning from quail, but I want to get my aviary done first. And I want to talk about doing this really small scale. I'm talking a lot of people, you could have a dozen quail, you know, and, and you could produce, even if not all your eggs, plenty of eggs for use and plenty of coal birds for meat, depending on how much meat you really want. You really could because even with a dozen birds, if you had a dozen birds and let's, let's call it 14 and we paired up a male per six females, we have a dozen layers or we broke the, the females into three colonies of four and paired up three males with them. So now we have 15. Even if that's not a huge amount of eggs, we can hatch eggs and produce as much meat as we would ever want. So what do you really want? Do you want to make quail or do you want to make quail's eggs? Which one do you want to be your byproduct? That, that's how you have to look at quail operation. And, and I, I just think that, and I, I've heard a lot of uh, doubts about these numbers. These numbers are real. They check out. I'm doing it. it, it and it's not hard. Um, I, I do feel that I have my birds a little more dense per cage than I want them right now. And I'm learning about the caging, and we're trying to come up with this new design for quail caging to make it really more versatile and really the best thing on the market that I'm working with Brad and, and a guy named Steve on. But even with that limitation and not being done with my um, aviary yet, it, it's apparent to me immediately how well this works. And I think about the fact that over six weeks, I raised 140 quail. And, yeah, there was a bunch of people here, but we processed them in an hour. An hour. All of them. 140 of them. Actually, I think we processed 130 because... I had culled a few out that had had some injuries, and we had one or two that died from cold because I, I did not baby them. And uh, But still, an hour. When we did a chicken workshop and we did 50 chickens, it took like four hours. It, it's, just, it's phenomenal how easy this is. So even if I'm going to, to raise out, let's say, this is how I want you to think about this here and, and why I'm such an advocate for this. For suburban growers, because you can. That's the big. First of all, throw everything else that I've said out. You can do it. And there's so many people so worried about the perfect instead of the good that they're not willing to focus on what they can do, and instead they want to they want to reach out to what they can't do. But if you do a meat run of 40, 40 quail, and you vacuum seal them two quail to a bag, and put them in the freezer, right? You have twenty little meat packages. With the vacuum sealing, I think you could do it in an hour and a half. I don't see how chickens compete with that anywhere, but they definitely don't compete with it in the suburbs. Now, can quail compete for meat production running Cornish cross chickens and a, and a chicken tractor, or paddock shift, you name it, type environment? Absolutely not. But that's not suburbia. I think for the small producer, and you don't, I don't think you're, I think you're producing a premium quality animal in a pastured chicken. I think you're producing a gourmet quality meat with a quail. And those that think quail can't be that much different, give them a try. Hot and fast cooking. That's, that's the key with quail, not low and slow. Anyway, with that, I, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. I hope I've got a lot of people excited about doing these things, uh, no matter what they are, whether it's building your own AR or growing chickens or growing ducks or growing quail. And my whole soliloquy there toward the end on quail, don't let that you know take away from keeping chickens or keeping ducks or keeping anything that you want to keep. 
just in your individual situation, what's the appropriate animal and what's the doable animal? And I'd say that with everything. What's the appropriate system? What's the doable system? What's the appropriate technology? What's the available technology? If you can answer those two questions, you can figure out what you're going to get done, and you can get shit done, and you can make things happen. So I'm going to close with today. I'm going to close with because, you know, I, I actually disagree with this song. But I actually think it's a really great song, and I, I'm not the most the biggest fan of the individual, but I, I really like a lot of his music. It's by Bruce Springsteen. Uh, and the song is called Glory Days. And it's it, it's about people that keep looking back to like high school and things like that, you know, when they were uh, athletes and things like that. And and, and the reason that I kind of disagree with the the uh, the connotation here is those aren't the glory days if you're living your life right. Um, I do talk sometimes to people that I went to high school with that are living. And I don't mean this in any bad way, but like the typical blue-collar lifestyle, especially for the the coal region of rural Pennsylvania. And what I mean by that is you, you, you go to school, you graduate. If you don't leave, you find a house, and you move into it, and maybe you have a family, and then you just stay there. And, and there's really wonderful people there. I, I, I wrote a post on Facebook the other day about a guy named Buddy Shoemaker who lived up the road from me who made wine for people and uh, the social capital the guy had was amazing. He had a wonderful life so I'm not saying you can't have a good life in those environments in those small towns and things like that because God knows I like small towns but I think people can get into a rut and I think that's what this song is really about. It's about being in a rut like I've reached the pinnacle of my success as a pitcher in high school. And now I have this, this dead-end job that's never going nowhere, that barely pays the bills, and I sit around and eat pizza and, 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 and hang out with some chick that I, that I remember from school and talk about how cool it was back then. And I look fondly back at some parts of those years of my life. I really do. I look fondly back at some parts of my life when I was in the military. I look fondly back at some parts of my life right after I got out of the military, the adventure of walking even a third of the Appalachian Trail. And that's what I did. I walked about a third of it. I didn't walk the whole thing. I didn't have time with when I got out. But I don't think I would have, I don't think I was up for that challenge. I don't think I wanted to be gone that long. I just needed like a reboot. I remember when I first moved to Texas, I had a friend that I served in the military with down here, and I met all these new people, and we used to go out to bars every night and party, and I remember that. I remember when I first met my wife, and it was that, that new, you know, that new love, that, that, that stuff that's deep and quick and hard and fast. And it does it, does it, does it last though is the question. And when it lasts, some of that, that extreme excitement that you have in a relationship at the very beginning, has to wane so that the relationship can mature into something much better, but not quite as exciting. You, I don't get real nervous, right, when we're going to go out on a date anymore, right? Like, does my hair look perfect? I'm like, I don't care, right? To much to her dismay sometimes, right? She's like, people are going to see you, and I'm like, there are people I'll never see again. I don't care, you know? But you don't, so that kind of, but... I don't look back to any of those and go, those are my glory days. I remember some of my first big wins and sales and coming up in that place. And I don't look at that as my glory days. And I don't even look at today as my glory days where, you know, I have 
this this wonderful life with TSP and all. I look at the whole thing as being a glorious opportunity. And as long as I can fog a mirror, I'm not done with it. I'm not done with it. And I, I find a little sadness in my heart when I talk to people and it's the, you know, do you remember? And not that I don't like reminiscing, I do, and talking about all the stupid stuff we did and the fun stuff we did and all. But when I realize that the person I'm talking to really would prefer to go back there than to be now, then I feel sadness for them. So I'm playing this song today, and my hope for you over this weekend is think about this. Your glory days are yet to come. The big things you're going to make happen, you haven't done yet. The biggest differences you're going to make, you haven't even started yet. The biggest impacts you're going to make will probably happen long after you're gone. You got a lot of living to do, and you got a lot of shit to get done. So let everybody else worry about the past glory days. Worry about tomorrow, whether about the next day. Worry about the now and have an awesome kick-ass weekend and get shit done. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.